Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Personal Finance brought to you by Liberty, your financial partner on however and whenever you picture retirement. You can live it your way. Hashtag in it with you. Liberty Group is an authorised FSP. T's and C's apply. Warren Ingram, Personal Financial Advisor, Executive Director at Galileo Capital. What should we be teaching our children about money, Warren? It's such a, a relevant question, I guess, in every age and stage of life. But, you know, particularly when we're kind of getting our, our way through a pandemic, you know, so, so many people are saying to me, you know, I, I wish our, our schools taught, you know, more about money. And I wish our, our you know, education system would take responsibility for teaching our kids about, about finances so that we can, uh, you know, we can kind of be better prepared for whatever the next crisis is and, and you know, more of our working population can can kind of get themselves out of a hole, uh, and and I always think uh, I'm not, not not to say that the education system shouldn't do something around money, but to, to, to me, really, you know, over over kind of nearly 25 years of of watching people who are financially successful, one of the things I've realised is that a lot of them have learned their earliest money lessons around the table, uh, you know, the, the kind of dinner table, the breakfast table at home. Their parents were the ones that would would take an interest in teaching the the, the children about money. That's uh, and, all, and I think that's I, all well and good if you grow up in a household that has access and capacity and wherewithal and the intelligence, you know, when they've got all those skills to do it. Um, most households in South Africa don't have a really good relationship with money, though, Warren. And I think that's why I would want the education system to do the job. Uh, I mean, fair fair point. Uh, I think it's a, a you're outsourcing the problem, unfortunately. And and I think you know, like most things with education, it can't be one or the other. It needs to be both. Uh, yeah, you know, and and, and, I'm, and say, saying this as a non-parent who, who has a, a deep interest in in educating children, but 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 I just think when we're talking about money, it's it's partly a financial or educational issue, but it's also a behavioral issue. And, and I think that that's the thing that parents need to instill in children is, is the behavioral habits that, that we all need to be good with money over our lifetime. And I'm not saying that, you know, let, let's, let's go to your point. You know, if, if you've grown up with no sort of formal education, no real access to the formal financial system, uh, one of the things that you might be able to do is to teach your children about, you know, the incomings and the outgoings from the family. In other words, money coming in, you know, we, we can we can measure that, we can count it, uh, and and we can measure what goes out. And we need to find ways to make sure that w- what comes in is always slightly more than what goes out. Uh, and and that's a beha- that's a habit, you know, that that's a behavior that we need to learn, uh, and and it does become a discipline. And and it's it's things that I I think parents don't discuss with their w- w- with their children. And I, and I just and think for I, me, you I know, wonder how much of that. Sorry, Warren, to keep interrupting, but I do wonder how much of that comes from a point of embarrassment that either the children are going to ask a question that they can't answer, um, or they children are going to say, "But Johnny's parents do better. Johnny's dad earns this much, or they drive this car, or or or." And if you feel inadequate about your own financial affairs, your openness to discussing money with your children is that much more limited. I would argue. Uh, an, another good point, and it sounds like another excuse. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, we're, oh. we're we're in the game. We're we're in the we're in the reality that we you know if you if you're parents, you, your your job is to teach your children you know life skills and and money you know and and the management of money is a life skill. And and again, I'm not saying that, that you know you, you need to 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 give your children a deep academic education. It, you know, if you can, if every parent can get it right to teach their children one thing, which is how to spend a bit less than what they earn all the time that for their lifetime. I, I think you know that, that that's that's almost common sense, but it is a behavioural issue. You know, it, it's like you know eating healthy or getting some exercise. You know, looking after yourself, getting enough sleep. Th- those are things that a, a teacher can tell a child, but but a parent can ingrain a behaviour. Uh, and, and I think for me, that would be the one message that I would love parents to take out of this. Is sure, you know, if you don't have the the, the formal education, and if you are embarrassed about your financial position, you, you know there is also an age and stage at which you discuss more and more with your children. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, necessarily that a five-year-old should know exactly what their parents are earning and exactly what their family spends, but but surely there there is a way to start by saying, let, let's let's decide for you as the child, you know, uh, let, let's start with what do you want and what do you need, and 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 that that sort of differentiation between wants and needs. Is, is something that we all need to learn. Uh, I know many 55-year-olds that don't get that right, but but it's something that you can definitely teach children at a very young age is understanding the difference between a want and need and then figuring out a game plan for saying, okay, th- this is what I'm, you know, the needs have to get funded, That that's no question, but then how do I get enough money for the wants? And make it, you know, when when children are young, you can make it, you know, something of a game, you know, something of a of a of something that they can work towards that's fun. Uh, and then another thing, which which seems to me to have kind of gone out of, I don't know if it's fashion or what the deal is, but uh, you know, giving kids the opportunity to to generate income for themselves, getting them to to be able to do chores, you know, for for additional money. Um, I, I can't, I don't, I can't tell you. Out of all of my friends, uh, I, I don't think a single one. Not one family uh, uh, make their children earn pocket money. Not one, uh, and 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 I think that you know for me that's something that's you know again you could say well uh, you know m- maybe some families don't have the luxury of being able to pay their children uh, you know pocket money and that's a fair point but but there should be ways that we could teach them uh, you, you know to to think about this and to come up with with strategies and as children get older I think we should be discussing the family uh, the family priorities the wants and the needs again around the family. This is what we need to do as a family. This is, you know, food and, and a roof over our head, education. Those things are, are, are an absolute necessity. But, you know, some of us want to go on holiday. Some of us want, you know, new phones or game consoles or whatever it is. And there is only so much money that we have to, to fund all those things. How are we going to do it? And I think that that's something that should be discussed with children in a very, in a kind of increasingly open way as as children get older. I think if you spring it on on a you know on an eighteen year old as they as they're leaving home, uh, you know that's not the time to do it. It should be something that's formed part of their lives from almost the time that you know that they can start to read and write. And I think that's the the, the message for me. Is that unfortunately, you know, you can't outsource this. You know, you know the, the the schools can. Can teach the more sophisticated concepts. Universities can can add to that, but those basic behaviours, Bruce. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't think that we can outsource that to a school. 
I feel like I have been schooled this evening. I'm back in my box and I will wind my neck in for a little while anyway. Um, <laughs> on, this, <laughs> on this particular point, Warren, you're absolutely right. And yes, I mean, even if it's only a limited point, it's, it's a case of also helping your kids understand your family circumstances without making them frightened about money, without making them frightened of scarcity, all of these sorts of things. You know, when we do this and we do that and that family does that, that's fine. That's up to them. Um, you know, we could perhaps do a little bit more of what they do if we did less of this, for argument's sake. There are certainly valuable lessons to be told. In a moment, Warren, I've got a, list, I've got a listener's question for you, and it comes from Tim. Uh, Tim is very nice. Um, says, uh, Warren said in a few of these episodes that one's going to be careful about where your offshore investments are domiciled. In other words, where they live. Best to keep them in the Channel Islands or Ireland uh, as they attract um, uh, situs tax. Uh, um, What tax would that be? Um, Situs tax. Guest duties or inheritance taxes. Okay, okay. okay. Maybe inheritance tax. I've I've never ever heard of situs taxes. Um, What I hope to clarify is the exemptions that apply in the USA and the UK. On to that question with Warren in a moment. Thank you, Tim. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. The world of offshore investing is very exciting. It's very tantalizing. It's very tempting. But you've got to be very, very careful as to how you go about doing it. And Warren and I have been discussing for quite some time as to some of the best approaches and the caution you need to exercise if you do have that wonderful problem of having quite a lot of capital. And if your capital has grown in value, you've got to be really careful about the amounts of money that you have invested in certain jurisdictions because should you die before your time, you may find what your beneficiaries may find that they're liable for higher levels of tax than perhaps you intended. I think that's the question here, Warren Ingram. So give me some idea of the limits, please, because Tim is looking for clarity. I just have to start by saying I think I might have been doing this with you for for about a decade, and tonight (laughs) is the very first time I've ever heard a listener catch you with something that that you don't know. So I must say congratulations, Tim. It's a, that's a first so, for me. So, I did so, fall so for is so situs is a thing. It's situs not, is a real thing. So, I just thought it was a typo. Yeah. Okay, explain it and to me. Go on. School so, me again. So, so that's twice. Situs is is uh, is. I mean, kind of if you say situation, you know. So, so in other words, where is the where, where is the domicile? Where does the investment live? Um, and so situs taxes, then it's it's deemed to be a, a local investment. So if you're, let, let, let's just, you know, to kind of Situation. get away from the, the lawyer speak. Yeah. So so if the money is situated in the US, then then it is subject to to death duties in the US when you die. That That's really what it means. Or the same would apply to the, to the UK. Uh, and, and, you know, we have the same thing in South Africa. We would call it uh, estate duty. The, the difference is that, that theirs is a lot higher. So, so for both the, the US and the UK, it's 40%. And, and that's the big issue now is that a lot of the time, you know, you'll, you'll see a lot of um, South African product providers offering you the ability to have money, you know, invested in the UK or, or in the USA. And, you know, it's, you know, everything's fine and dandy because now we get to buy our Berkshire Hathaways and our Apple shares and, you know, our Vanguard ETFs. You know, and, and we've spoken about ETFs on the show and everyone's you know, really thrilled now that they've got these investments, but they, they miss this tricky thing of the tax. And, and so Tim's question is, you know, what happens if we've got this money? Surely, you know, we're going to have a double taxation agreement and, and we'll be sort of okay. And, and unfortunately, I think Tim is wrong. 
Uh, and, and the starting point is if you die in America and you're, 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 you're not, sorry, not die in America, but if you die and your, your shares in America or your ETFs or any investments are worth more than $60,000, you're going to give away 40% of that, the, the amount above $60,000 to the taxman in America. The fact that we've got a double taxation agreement means that you won't also pay the 20% inheritance tax on that money in South Africa. That, that's really my understanding of, of, of how the double taxation agreement will work. But you are still going to pay the Americans that, that, that tax. The, the same would apply in the UK. So, so if you pass away and you've got assets more, worth more than £325,000 in the UK, then 40% of that will go off to, to, to the Queen's uh, tax people there. And, and so, you know, long story short, what you've got to do is make sure that your investments don't live in either of those places. They need to live in, in, in places that don't tax uh, non-residents. In other words, a place like Ireland, uh, a place like Luxembourg, Switzerland, uh, Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Man, those are called the Channel Islands. All of those, uh, they're not dodgy from the point of view that, that the money will be hidden. They're, they're all part of the, the global tax system. You know, SARS will know about the money if you try to hide it away, but they're not going to tax you twice. You're going to pay tax in South Africa, but you're not also going to pay, pay tax there. And, and so I think, you know, Tim's question is a good one from the point of view that, there, you know, was there a potential kind of a loophole, um, you know, maybe that the, the amounts are a bit higher, but, but I don't see it. To, my reading of this whole thing is, um, make sure your money isn't housed there and you're fine. But but if it is, make sure that you, you have less than $60,000 in America and less than £325,000 in the UK and you're okay. Now, people are obsessed about this idea of taking your money offshore, getting it out of the reach of South African politicians is the reason I am told more often than not as to why people want to use uh, their offshore allowance. Wealthy people can take 11 million rand each a year. Um, rich people can take uh, 1 million a year. Um, and then everybody else you know, wants to get, you know, get money offshore. Um, surely this process is simplified, particularly if you don't have a huge amount of money. Uh, by just you know, investing in a, a local unit trust that invests offshore or in a local ETF that is invested offshore, a locally domiciled ETF. Or, or I agree. Uh, I agree. Uh, and, and, and then you've got none of these issues because, you know, your tax reporting is all taken care of in South Africa. The, the state duties are, are all known about, you know, the, 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 all, of, all of that becomes a, a much easier deal. And, and in the unit trust world, the, the funds that you'd be looking for would be called, uh, the, I mean, they've got a terrible name, but they would be called feeder funds. So it would be, let's say, for example, the, the S&P 500 feeder fund. And, and just to understand that, what it means is you're buying a local unit trust, and the only thing that that unit trust does is it feeds money into a dollar fund that then buys the, 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 the S&P 500 index in America. So, so when you want the money back one day, you, you will sell your local unit trust. Money will come from America to the local unit trust first, and from the local unit trust, it will come back to you. So, so slightly more complex, but not for the individual investor. All of that stuff is taken care of by the unit trust company. And I agree. I mean, I think if you were doing, uh, you know, debit order investing or doing small amounts, th- this is a much more, uh, you know, convenient way and much more simplistic way of, be- of being able to achieve that offshore diversification. The one thing it doesn't achieve, and, and, and you know, to your point, is a lot of people are really worried that, you know, you know one day we get 
you know, the EFF in charge of the country and they nationalize everything. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, the, your assets are gone. You know, and I, I'm, I guess it might be unfair of you calling out one party, but any any kind of change where, where, where politicians become radical um, and, and start to nationalize assets, the, the, the feeder funds won't achieve an objective of, of protecting you from a crazy decision of a politician. All right. No, and again, I think that's precisely why people are, are, are frightened on that particular basis. But thank you for that, Tim. Great question um, and lovely response there, Warren. And then finally, a, a quick question for you. What is an investment cycle? Now, I know what a bicycle is. A bicycle is a two-wheeled vehicle that throws you out into the middle of the road in peak time traffic when parents <laughs> are dropping their children off at school and you get massively humiliated. No, that's okay. That's too much information. What is an investment cycle? So sounds like there's something you need to share. <laughs> no, uh, an investment the bruises, the bruises, the bruises. <laughs> so an investment cycle is, is uh, it, it's kind of the, the most similar I can think of is probably in an agricultural cycle where you've got you know years of of kind of you know good years um, you know kind of middling of the road years and then lean years or, or drought years, and investment cycles are very similar. So so what happens is you know South Africa is coming out of out of a very long patch where where everything has been against us. You know we we've had you know no, no, kind of no benefit in the commodity cycle. We've had terrible you know, you know politicians. You know, really bad uh, economic decisions around around South Africa, and and just kind of an aversion to emerging markets. So so we've had this this downward cycle where markets have just been going you know further and further down. Uh, you know, investments are trending sideways or or, or getting worse, uh, and and what you find is confidence uh, just depleting, and then all of a sudden things start to change, and and that that cycle starts to turn. And so you find that it's usually sentiment driven because in our instance, we get a new, a new president. Uh, at the same time, uh, we, we see a change in the, in the demand for emerging markets and, and we see demand for resources picking up. And so that the, the, the cycle goes from awful and decline and despair to, to kind of muted uh, optimism, which is I think where we are now. Uh, we, we still have so many problems that uh, around ESCOM that you know we, we would be silly to think that we're all optimistic. But, but the issue is that we now there is now an, a new kind of early dawn, and and that's the that's the part of of being an investment cycle now that you know we're we're starting to to rise, and what will happen now and I'll, and I'll finish is we we go to being you know kind of slightly optimistic then hugely over optimistic usually just before markets crash because we we overpay for everything, and then we start the cycle again of decline until the next uptick. We must leave it there, Warren Ingram. Thank you. Beautifully explained.